morning. I, uh, I look around the church building, the sanctuary here, and for some strange reason I'm thinking dessert. Anybody with me on that? Gosh, a lot of, uh, lot of hours went in yesterday, both outside and inside, um, to, to, make, uh, to make this VBS presentation a reality. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night. And uh, on the front end, I just want to pray for VBS this week. I want to pray. Well, I want to pray. So please join me. So Father mentioned yesterday to some people, I wonder how, wonder how many tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people have had this experience called VBS. Lord, where seeds were planted and watered and some bore fruit to righteousness, some bore fruit to eternal life. And Father, I pray that that's the case this week. Lord, that as um, we serve these children and we serve one another, that your name would be exalted, that your name would be made famous. Lord Jesus, that you would be all in all, that children's hearts will be soft to you, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, that we as leaders will be diligent in our preparations and Lord, loving in our deliveries. Lord, when, when Friday night is over, Lord, may everybody involved say, you know what, this was, this was good. This was a blessing. And this was pleasing. Father, on the front end of this sermon, Lord, I pray that your word would find good soil. That it would bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, that your spirit would have his way in our midst today. And Lord, that we would be prepared to engage our world with truth and love. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament will be in John, four different passages. Uh, but I, I, I want to, we're going to be talking about Philip today. I want to pop up on the, on the screen if you'll take a look-see. I thought that was a good prompt. Pop up on the screen, just foom. If we could just wonder what that looks like if it were on the screen. Not that one. That one! Right there. So, we're in the second grouping, the second listing, or the second grouping in this discipleship list. Notice Matthew, Mark, Luke. John doesn't have a disciple uh, grouping or listing. Acts does. But we're focusing today on Philip. And it's interesting that all four instances, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, place Philip first in this second tier of disciple groupings. We've covered the two sets of brothers. Um, Thomas was hit a few weeks ago. Philip today. 
Which lends us to, to think that quite plausibly, somehow, some way, the early church, the disciples saw Philip as some kind of a, some kind of preeminence, some kind of a leader in this uh, in this second tier group. As far as background goes, with the exception of in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with the exception of the disciple listings, no mention of Philip the apostle, Philip the the disciple. It is John who gives us these little tidbits, these. Uh, uh, these, these little storied glimpses into Philip's life. There's historical evidence to suggest that Philip died in the ancient city of Hierapolis, which is now southwestern Turkey. Hierapolis, you may not be familiar with that city, but you're probably familiar with two cities it was near, the city of Colossae, letter to the Colossians, and the city of Laodicea, one of the seven churches um, that was written to in the book of Revelation. How he died, it seems that he died in Hierapolis. Uh, uh, tradition, uh, reliable sources place him there. The question is, how did he die? Some sources say he died a natural death. Some sources say he died a martyr's death. So there's some uncertainty there. Additionally, for clarification... The Philip that we're going to study today, that we're going to uh, walk through John's gospel about today, Philip the Apostle, is not the same Philip as we are introduced to in Acts chapter 6, Philip the Evangelist, or sometimes called Philip the Deacon, one of the first deacons. So there's two different Philips. In fact, after the Acts listing of Philip's, uh, of Philip, Philip drops off from the biblical narrative. We don't hear about him, read about him again. So I want to make that distinction. We're talking about two different Philipses, Philips, Philips, Philippies here, okay? In terms of, finally, in terms of distinguishing character qualities, like us, like if you're honest with yourself, like we are at times complex, aren't we? In fact, we are at times a little bit schizophrenic. Is that fair? Like, would others say that, like, sometimes I don't know which you is going to show up. Zach, is that, is that fair? My wife would say that. I'm like, Bill, I don't, sometimes, which bill am I going to get today? That's true of, 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 of Philip. He comes across, like all of us, as a bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand, as we're going to see early on in John's gospel, there's this, there's this sensitivity, if I could put it this way, there's this sensitivity to spiritual things. We'll see that right out of the gate in John chapter 1, spiritual matters. On the other hand, Philip comes across as just the facts, ma'am. A by-the-book, what's-the-bottom-line kind of a personality, which causes him, and we're going to see that in the biblical narrative, which causes him to be insensitive to spiritual matters. So on the one hand, he's like this, we're going to see right off the gate, right, right out of the gate, he's really into this Messiah. He's been studying, he's been engaged, goes tell a, a friend, all that kind of stuff. And later on in John's gospel, is like, dude... You have been walking with Jesus for three years. How do you not get this kind of a thing? 
Now, did I just describe anybody in here? Do you, do you ever struggle with forgetfulness regarding what Jesus has done? Not only what he has done as it relates to your life, but what he has done in the biblical record? If that's you, and I'll be flat out honest with you, that's me from time to time, then you're in good company because I think that captures Philip. So we're going to look at four passages today, all in John's Gospel, and I encourage you, invite you to turn to uh, uh, John chapter 1. And as we walk through these four passages, I'm going to, I'm going to bring to bear four, four application points, if you want to put it, put it that way, in the, in, in the context of four questions. Four questions that I think emerge from these four passages of Scripture. So in John chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 43. Um, if you've been paying attention over the weeks, this is about the third or fourth time we've been in this passage because so many disciples are actually named and we are first introduced to them in this passage. So John chapter 1, going to start at verse 43. In verses 35 through 42, Andrew and John, Andrew tells Peter, yada, yada, yada. We've already looked at that. Pick it up in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip. Now, this is interesting. He, Jesus, found Philip. The, the, the disciples previously, they went and approached Jesus, but here with Philip, it's a little bit different. Jesus approaches Philip and told him, follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Highly likely that Philip also knew Andrew and Peter, also knew James and John. Verse 45, like the next thing we read Philip doing, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have I wonder what that conversation between Jesus and Philip was like. We're not told how long it was. To the point where the first thing Philip does and goes out and finds a friend, Nathanael, and tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. It's like... Everything is crystallized. Whatever that conversation between Jesus and Philip was like, like a light bulb went off in Philip's head. He's the guy, he's the guy, he's the guy, he's the guy. And he goes and tells Nathaniel, verse 46. Interesting. Nathaniel's response, and we'll get to Nathaniel. No prejudice here. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm not going to spend time here because we'll talk about Matthew, Nathaniel. I just find this hilarious. Matthew asked him. Philip said, just didn't bat an eye. Come check it out. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Isn't that at its core what Jesus' followers are supposed to be about? are supposed to be about when it comes to witnessing, when it comes to bearing witness to how Jesus changed, changed. Come and see. Check them out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Have your own encounter with Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you a couple of things here. Philip cultivated. I'm going to come back to that word cultivated. 
Philip cultivated, number one, an evangelistic heart. Verse 45a, Philip found Nathaniel. First thing he does, right out of the gate, an almost spontaneous, exuberant desire. Got, where's, Nath, where's Nathaniel? Got to find him, got to find him, got to find him. Almost this spontaneous overflowing of the man. We found him. Nathaniel, come check him out. So I think Philip cultivated, important word there, an evangelistic heart. Secondly, a seeking and teachable heart. Second part of verse 45, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets. Philip knew his, what we would call his Old Testament regarding the Messiah. He certainly knew his Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He knew. He was ready. He was prepared for when the Messiah came, he could recognize him. He was expecting the Messiah. Knew his Torah. Knew his prophets. I'm going to do something with all four of these passages. We're going to do a zoom in and a zoom out. We're going to look at the passage in context, all right? Then we kind of zoom out to its broader context. I want to zoom out with this, with this passage right now. I use the word cultivated intentionally. Philip cultivated an evangelistic heart, a seeking heart, a teachable heart heart. I don't know about you, but I wasn't born with a with an evangelistic heart, a seeking heart, a teaching heart. I get it to a degree. There are spiritual gifts. I understand that. I embrace that biblical teaching. There are certain gifts and talents, but we're also told to fan into flames that God-given giftedness. We might say there is God's part and there is our part. The word cultivated is a, a sanctif- big word, a sanctification word. Often sanctification is explained this way. There are three tenses of sanctification. I have been saved. I am being present tense saved. And I will be saved, glorified, however you want to phrase that. Right now, we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are in the present tense phase. Have been, past tense, will be, future, the other side, whatever that looks like. But right now, we live between times, don't we? We live between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. So we are in a time between times, and we need to embrace where we're at. God determined, if Acts tells us accurately, God determined that you would live on the earth during this time. It's not a mistake that you are living during this time. If that's true, then it behooves us as believers to make the most of this time. To make the most of this season. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 puts it this way. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, check out these two crucial phrases. Work out. Flesh out. 
your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why? For it is God who is present tense working in you, both to will, to desire, and to work according to his good purpose. Now, before I go on, let me put this in place. When you said yes to Jesus, you no longer get an agenda. Let me say that again. When you said yes to Jesus, you no longer have a right to your own agenda. When Jesus walked the earth, did he have his own agenda? Or what do we hear him saying over and over and over and over in the Gospels? I did not come to what? Do my own will, but the Father's will who sent me. How true is that of us who are Jesus' followers? We don't get our own agenda. I'm not talking about passions, desires, all that kind of stuff. But when you bring your passions and your desires for the Lord, before the Lord, I would, Lord, there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, here's my heart. Here's in this situation. This is what I would like to see happen. Nothing wrong with that. I would encourage you, however, to take a cue from Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there is any other way to accomplish your will and your purposes, let's do it. Comma. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Long time ago, I learned to pray what I now call comma prayers. Because I take my cue from Jesus. In this situation, Lord, here's my heart. I'm just laying it before you. This is what I would like to see happen, comma. Nevertheless, Lord, if it's not in keeping with your will, let's go the other way. Fair? For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work again. Here's what I think. This is the Philip we see in this passage. Over the course of time, don't know how long, but over the course of some time, through habits of spiritual formation, Philip placed himself within the stream of God's transforming grace. And as a result, he cultivated an evangelistic and seeking teachable heart. Let me say that again. Through habits of spiritual formation. What do I mean by habits of spiritual formation? Habits, so important in the Christian life. I'm going to touch on that in a second. Things like we, prayer, scripture, reading, study, meditation, corporate gatherings, fasting, Silence and solitude, what we typically refer to as the spiritual disciplines, spiritual formation. I believe that over time, through some of those habits, Philip placed himself within the. That's spiritual disciplines, some of which I just named, are not the end game, folks. They're a means to an end, they're not the end in of themselves. When we practice corporate worship, when we engage in prayer, both personally and corporately, 
When we sing, when we study scripture, when we fast, when we spend time in silence and solitude with the Lord, and the list goes on and on and on, what we are doing is what Philip did. We are placing ourselves in the stream of God's transforming grace. That's what those spiritual disciplines are for, so that we can be placed where God's grace can meet us and change us and rearrange us. Hear this well, dear saint. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning. By its very definition, you can't earn grace. You can receive it and cooperate with it. Therefore, grace is absolutely opposed to earning. But not our effort with it. God's part, our part. Which brings me to the first question. Question number one. Are my daily routines conducive? to putting myself in a position to receive and work out God's grace. Like, if you were to take a typical day in your life, just a typical day, would the habits, we all have them, we all have them, would the habits that reveal themselves in a typical day in your life, would those habits, by and large, could you say that, yes, those habits are putting me in the stream, placing me in the river of God's transforming grace? If you hear nothing else in the message today, hear what I'm about to tell you. We form the habits that then form us. We form the habits that then form us. On the front end of forming a habit, do you have a choice? Do I have a cho Of course we do. We choose to engage, and then again we choose to engage, and then again and again, until, watch this, it, it, whatever it is, whatever practice it is, becomes so habit-forming that we don't even what? Think about it. Now you might say, but, but Bill, if I don't even think about it, but I do it, how am I responsible? Because you were responsible on the front end for, for forming the habit. You see, we form the habits that then form us. Such an important biblical concept. Turn in our next passage to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, uh, the, only, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, we know it as uh, the, the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, Huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain, sat down there with his disciples. Verse 4, now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. 
So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked, who does he ask? Philip. Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Verse 6. He, that is Jesus, asked this to test Philip. For he, Jesus himself, knew what he, Jesus, was going to do. Philip answered, and here's, here is just the facts, ma'am. Very, very pragmatic, very process-oriented Philip coming through. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of these people to have even a little bit. 200 denarii, a denarii back in the day was a day's wage. So this comes out to many months of day's wages. Philip had made the calculations, hadn't he? The just the facts, ma'am, Philip. Jesus asked this to test him. The point of Jesus' question was possibly, probably, to determine whether Philip had grown in his understanding of who Jesus was. Remember, prior to this, what had Philip experienced personally in the company of Jesus? Let's start out with, in John's Gospel, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus did what? Changes the water into wine. And we read John's commentary, and his disciples put their faith in him. So Philip's faith, belief in Jesus, grows a little bit. Same Philip, who had personally witnessed numerous healings and demon-casting outings, Demon casting, demon, you get the idea. Many times. But here we come to the feeding of the 5,000. This is like a dough moment, right? But how easy is it for us to be looking back in history and have all the context, right? What do we do when Jesus comes to us with our feeding of the 5,000 moment. More on that in a second. Philip has done his calculations and he had determined it didn't matter everything he had experienced up to this point. Nope. This job can't be done. Zoom out. Broader context. So important we hear this. In the broader context of John's gospel, yes, Jesus asks this question of Philip explicitly. However, he also asks this question of us implicitly. He's also asking you. He's also asking me. In other words, question number two. When God presents me with my feeding of the 5,000 moment, what is my default response? In other words, what immediately flows out of me? What immediately do I say? What immediately do I think? When I'm bumped with my feeding of the 5,000 moment, what do I do? What do you do? What, like, what is your gut level 
reaction. Nope. Can't be done. Or might it be something like this? Lord, you know what? I remember. I remember when, two years ago, this very spot. I remember that you showed up. And Lord, going even farther back and farther back and farther back, Lord, I am told, in the ancient Israelites, what were they supposed to do prior to entering the, the, the promised land? What were they commanded by Yahweh through Moses to do? Teach these things to your children. Help them remember God's mighty deeds. His mighty acts. Why? Because God is not just a back then there God. He's a right here, right now God. Psalm 143 verse 5 captures what's happening here. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I reflect on the work of your hands. When God presents me with my feeding of the 5,000 moment, is my default position to remember and meditate and reflect? God was faithful here and here and here. In fact, too many times to count. I can trust that in this feeding of the 5,000 moment, he will also be faithful. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I know you can and I know you will. Help me understand what's my role, what's my part to play. Fair? Right? Third passage. If you'll turn over. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, this is uh, otherwise known. We, we celebrate this particular day as in our liturgical calendar as Palm Sunday, also called the, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Triumphal entry, interesting. John 12, I'm going to start verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus replied to them, Is the them here just Philip and Andrew, or is it Philip, Andrew, and the Greeks who were inquiring? I happen to think it was Philip, Andrew, and the Greeks who were inquiring. So what does Jesus do? He be begins to, in essence, give these Greeks the gospel. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Strategic pause. 
To follow Jesus in this life means to do what, among other things? It means to die. It means to die to yourself, your plans, your goals, your ambitions, and to live for Christ. Last I checked, that's part of the gospel. The gospel... The gospel is not a self-help regimen. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. That's the gospel. This is not a self-help book. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These Greeks were either God-fearing Gentiles or full-fledged converts to Judaism who came to worship God at the Passover feast. There was a place, the temple area was so structured that non-Jews could actually go only so far that they could actually go and worship Yahweh. They sought out Philip probably because of his Greek name. Jesus then preached the gospel to the Greeks and basically invites them to follow, to follow him. Let's zoom out a little bit. Question for us all. In bringing these Greeks to Andrew and then Andrew and Philip bringing these Greeks to Jesus, now watch this. Did they break protocol? Like, did they breach a taboo? Kind of, sort of, from Jesus' own teaching? Check out Matthew 10. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those are Jesus' words. So, so by Philip... And Andrew, bringing the Greeks to Jesus, did he break protocol? Like, did he, did he mess with a taboo of Jesus? No, he didn't. Because if you look at Jesus' teaching in the whole context, yes, the gospel to the, Gent, or to the Jews first, but not only to the Jews. John three sixteen: for God loved the Jews. For God so loved the Jews that for God so loved the world, right? Be careful that we don't cherry pick passages in Scripture to fit our predisposition of how Jesus should act. God forbid that we should do that, right? I think we just get out of the way and let Jesus be Jesus. Question number three. What social taboos or church taboos am I willing to break in order to introduce people to Jesus? What we've never done it that way before taboos am I willing to, nope, not doing it, in order to bring people to Jesus? Who are your Samaritans? Where's your Samaria? Who are my Samaritans? Where is my Samaria? 
Who are my sinners and tax collectors? Who are your sinners and tax collectors? What social church taboos am I willing to break in order to introduce people to Jesus? Fourth and final passage, John 14, just a few chapters over. This is the upper room experience. Begin at verse 1. Jesus speaking. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am you may also be. You know the way to where I am going. Here we go. Dialogue picks up. Verse 5. Lord, Thomas said, "Um, we really don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Like, where are you going? Verse 6. Jesus told him, famous verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Enter... Philip. Verse 8. Lord said, Philip, I'm going to take you at your word. Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Like, show us the Father in living proof. Like, produce him. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, just as an aside, I wonder how many times, maybe not in these exact words, but with the same heart, Jesus says this to us. Bill, have I been with you all this time and you don't know me? Have I been uh, among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe, crucial, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Verse 11, here we are again. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Okay, so let me get this straight. Three years prior, Philip nails it. Like, absolutely nails it. Goes and tells, has an encounter with Jesus beats feet to go to we have found the Messiah the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about come and see and now three years later show us the father like what what just happened it has everything to do with that word believe let's zoom out broader context John, in his gospel, uses various forms of the word believe nearly 100 times. And always in verb form. Philip believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but now Jesus was pressing him to take his faith to its logical conclusion. Philip was standing in the presence of the same eternal God whose presence he had been standing in for the past three years. For three years, 
Philip looked into the very face of very God. Let that sink in. For three years, Philip looked into the very face of very God. What was Philip's problem? Has everything to do with belief. He looked, but he didn't see. His just the facts, ma'am, by the book, What's the Bottom Line Mindset, had blinded him to the reality that for three years he looked into the very face of very God. C.S. Lewis married his wife, Joy, in 1956. A short four years later, she died of cancer. And that... That threw C.S. Lewis into a bit of a tailspin. Not that he doubted his... He... Like, God, what are you doing? Why? I don't get it. This makes absolutely zero sense to me. I have waited this long, and here you grace me, you bless me with an incredible woman. And all I get is four years? And half of that, she's sick? Like, what's up with that, God? Have you ever had a similar conversation like that with God? I have. Many times. I don't get it. So over the course of some time, C.S. Lewis wrestled with this like wrestled with it. And as a writer, to process what he was feeling, he began to journal his thoughts. And the journaling of his thoughts turned into a book called A Grief Observed. And about two-thirds of the way, 75% of the way through him processing the death of joy and all that that entailed, he comes to this conclusion and he writes this. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. And here it is. He, God, is the great iconoclast. I'll unpack that in a second. Could we not almost say, hear this well, let this soak into your soul, that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation, that is, Jesus come in the flesh. The incarnation is the supreme example it leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. An iconoclast is someone who breaks, who smashes idols. 
Lewis is helping us understand that God, in His divine mercy, destroys the walls of the temples where our idols are hidden and smashes the idols themselves, including our idols, dare I say it, of Him. Because God wants to give us more of Himself as He truly is. Question number four. Am I following Jesus? Or am I following my idea of Jesus? Who or what are you following? What do those habits that we talked about earlier reveal regarding that question? Notice Lewis says it has to be shattered time after time. Why? Because we grow, don't we, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And if we're not careful, if we're not open to that process, we think once and for all, I have him pegged. This is God. Only for God to invade our space once again and say, I don't think so. Bill, let me be me. Bill, follow me, not your idea of me. So, who? Who is this Jesus that week after week, maybe day after day, we claim to follow? Like, what's your idea of Jesus? I've begun recently, when, we, when I participate in the Lord's Supper, to break the bread. Because it reminds me that that's who Jesus is. That the Jesus who is, His body was broken. His blood spilled out for me. For you. That's the Jesus who is. And He calls me into relationship with Himself. Not a set of doctrines about Him. As important as doctrines are. But doctrines can get in the way. Teachings can get in the way of following Jesus Himself. Broken and spilled out. And He calls you. And He calls me to follow Him, watch this, unreservedly, like nothing held back. And He says to me, Bill, one day at a time, this is your primary job. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That is, take up my way and follow me. Bill, that's it. And Bill, in the midst of that, you will know what you are to do that day. Bill, deny yourself. Take up your cross 
and follow me. That's the Jesus who is. Not my idea of Jesus. Friends, Jesus has called us to follow him. So today, let's follow him.